following sermon was recorded during the Sunday morning gathering of Grace Community Church in Las Cruces, New Mexico. We are a group of Christians that exists to joyfully extol and magnify the true and living God, to faithfully proclaim the Christ-centered word, to build each other up by speaking the truth in love, and to bring the good news of the gospel to our city and world so that the Lamb who was slain may receive the full reward for his sufferings. For more information about us, please visit gcclascruces.com. Well, I invite you to take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to the fifth chapter of the Gospel according to Matthew. Matthew chapter 5. As I was planning for and mapping out our journey through Matthew's gospel several months ago, I had the thought of preaching a chapter per sermon. I ran that thought by several ministry friends here and elsewhere, and pastors, and even one modern-day commentator who's devoted much of his career to Matthew's gospel, and it seemed like a feasible approach until I got to the Sermon on the Mount. And it almost seemed criminal to preach it in three sermons. And so those of you who knew about the bet my wife and I had, she won. (laughs) And so while I still plan on taking this approach throughout the majority of Matthew's gospel, we will probably slow down when we get to the five major teaching sections of this gospel And so if you were looking forward to covering all 48 verses today, which would give me approximately in an hour, less than maybe a little bit more than a minute to cover each one, I'm sorry to disappoint you, but I am not sorry for seeking to unpack the riches of what is arguably one of the greatest sermons ever preached by the greatest preacher to ever walk this earth, the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of glory, and his sermon on the mount. As a pastor who prays and seeks and plans for what I believe will be for your greatest good and your ultimate joy in God, I also have to submit my life to the truth of Proverbs chapter 16, verse 9, which says that the heart of man plans his way, but Yahweh directs his steps. I have to be content in knowing that as Proverbs chapter 19, verse 21 says, many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of Yahweh that will stand. And so I trust we're in God's will this morning in slowing down in Matthew 5. Luke Timothy Johnson wrote that in the history of Christian thought, indeed in the history of those observing Christianity, the Sermon on the Mount has been considered an epitome of the teaching of Jesus, and therefore, for many, the essence of Christianity. A recent Gallup poll revealed that only one-third of Americans, American adults, are familiar enough with the Sermon on the Mount to recognize that Jesus is the one who delivered it. Sadly, many Americans believe that it was preached by the 20th century evangelist, Billy Graham. If people reference the Sermon on the Mount today, they typically love to quote chapter 7 and verse 1, where Jesus said, Judge not, 
that you be not judged. A passage that is usually stripped from its context and used to support the tolerance of sin. Over the years, the Sermon on the Mount has suffered a tremendous amount of abuse. There have been and there still are those today who believe that the ethical standards that Jesus lays out in the Sermon on the Mount are impossible for Christians. They see it as a kind of continuation of the Old Testament law, a magnification of the Old Testament law, which was meant to crush man's pride and drive him to despair so that he would look out of himself and onto Christ for salvation and life and forgiveness. But there is good evidence dating all the way back to the early church fathers that the church has viewed the Sermon on the Mount as something that Christians are to emulate and seek to live by. The author of the Didache, which was a church manual probably written between 60 and 80 AD, saw the Sermon on the Mount as a description of the genuine righteousness that Christians are to emulate, the righteousness that characterizes the ideal Christian disciple. John Chrysostom, the famous preacher from Antioch from the 4th century, said regarding the Sermon on the Mount, let us not consider that these commandments are impossible. Augustine likewise believed that the Sermon on the Mount was, quote, the perfect measure of the Christian life. He said that it is, quote, filled with all the precepts by which the Christian life is formed, close quote. He taught that the power to live up to the standards in the Sermon on the Mount first came from regeneration and then by the power and help of the Holy Spirit. And then as you move along, you get to the Middle Ages where you have a guy by the name of Thomas Aquinas. And he introduced the belief that not all of the Sermon on the Mount was applicable to every believer. Aquinas divided the portions, some portions of the Sermon on the Mount into two categories, teaching that some of its counsels were intended only for the spiritually elite within the church. And that the only way to live up to these standards was by withdrawing yourself from society to live as either a monk or a nun, completely cut off from society and the world. Well, then came the Protestant Reformation, who rejected the Protestant reformers. These guys rejected Aquinas' view of the Sermon on the Mount. Martin Luther taught that the Sermon on the Mount addressed those who are already Christians, and that it was the grace of God that produces the kind of life described in the sermon. He stated that the Sermon on the Mount says nothing about how we become Christians, but rather it describes, quote, the works and fruit that no one can do unless he is already a Christian and in a state of grace. Luther was against the idea that ordinary Christians were incapable of living up to the standards of the Sermon on the Mount. And then John Calvin followed suit, adding that the purpose behind the Sermon on the Mount was to rescue God's law from the erroneous teachings of the Pharisees who had reduced everything down to external actions while failing to emphasize the vital importance of internal attitudes. Before God. 
Calvin viewed the Sermon on the Mount as the ethic of the new covenant that would be fulfilled in the lives of ordinary believers by the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. And then we come to the 1900s, where some, not all, but some dispensationalists argue that the Sermon on the Mount isn't applicable to Christians today, viewing it as either belonging to the old era of the law or seeing it as the future ethic that will characterize the earthly millennial reign of Jesus on the earth. For example, Lewis Ferry Schaefer in his Systematic Theology said that as a rule of life, the Sermon on the Mount is addressed to the Jew before the cross and to the Jew in the coming kingdom and is therefore not now in effect. And he continued, a moment's reflection will convince the mind that such a standard as this belongs to another social order than the present one. It is designed for a day when the king reigns upon his earthly throne and when Satan is in his abyss. Close quote. Schaefer believed that as the law of Moses governed the people of Israel before the dispensation of grace, the teachings of the kingdom, specifically the Sermon on the Mount, will govern the conduct of God's people in the millennial kingdom, insisting that living up to the standards in the Sermon on the Mount required, quote, the binding of Satan, a purified earth, the restoration of Israel, and the personal reign of the king. Well, later on, Charles Ryrie came with a more balanced view, stating that the dispensationalist does recognize the relevance and application of the teachings of the Sermon on the Mount to believers today. However, the primary fulfillment of the Sermon on the Mount and the full following of its laws are applicable to the future messianic kingdom. Thankfully, John MacArthur takes a different approach. He sees the Sermon on the Mount as the manifesto of the king and his kingdom, here and now. And he identifies five reasons why the Sermon on the Mount is important for us today. Number one, much like Augustine's belief, MacArthur teaches that the Sermon on the Mount shows the absolute necessity of the new birth. The absolute necessity of the new birth. The high calling of this sermon demands a new nature a new life, a new power, a power given in regeneration. Secondly, the Sermon on the Mount is important because it's intended to drive the listener to Christ as man's only hope of living a life worthy of the gospel. Third, the Sermon on the Mount gives God's pattern for happiness and true success. The Sermon on the Mount reveals the path to completeness, wholeness in the eyes of God. Fourthly, the Sermon on the Mount is important because it's perhaps the greatest spiritual resource for fulfilling the Great Commission. While Christians who emulate the lifestyle and the conduct that Jesus sets forth in the Sermon on the Mount will inevitably draw persecution, Jesus also teaches us in the Sermon on the Mount that it will also attract a curious and dying world to believers to ask them for the reason for the hope that is within them. So it will attract persecution if you live this way, but it will also attract a dying world in search of hope. And fifthly, MacArthur stresses the importance of the Sermon on the Mount because in it, Jesus describes the kind of life that actually pleases his heavenly Father. 
And so my approach, the next several weeks, as we make our way through the Sermon on the Mount, this is somewhat of an introduction. I know your handout says the title of today's sermon is Matthew 5, Blessedness and Righteousness. You can add part one to that. My approach will be to avoid the several extremes that have arisen throughout the history of the church. I'll name three of them for you. Number one, extreme number one, the view that the Sermon on the Mount is for the spiritually elite, the Navy SEALs of the church, who either stand above the average Christian or who are so spiritual that they have to separate themselves from society in order to live up to the high calling of the Sermon on the Mount. Extreme number two that we will seek to avoid. The view that the Sermon on the Mount was and is for another era, either before the cross or sometime in the future when Jesus reigns in Jerusalem and Satan is bound in the abyss. Extreme number three that we will seek to avoid is the view that likens the Sermon on the Mount to the law of Moses and believes that its purpose, like the law, is to crush us and drive us to despair so that we look to Christ for justification and forgiveness and life. This view sees the demands of the Sermon on the Mount as impossible for New Covenant believers to live up to. I'm sure you've met some of these folks. I'm sure maybe you've, you've taken that stance before. Who can walk in the Beatitudes? Who can walk in the six antitheses of uh, chapter 5? You've heard that it was said, but I say to you, who can do that? And so we go through this life t- thinking that Christianity is just impossible. And I think Kevin DeYoung's new book is going to be helpful for a lot of people. It's called Impossible Christianity. And he goes to show that what God is calling us to is not an impossibility. But indeed, his very expectation for what life looks like in the kingdom of Christ. And so I'll be taking the approach of inaugurated eschatology, which insists that the kingdom of God was inaugurated on this earth during the life and ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ, and that although the kingdom is here and present, it will not be consummated until the king returns in his glory. So the Sermon on the Mount describes life and conduct in the kingdom here and now, the very life that pleases the king who rules over his kingdom. You see, as believers today, we live in the tension between the already and not yet. And so while we recognize the blessedness of those who hunger and thirst for righteousness and the promise that they shall be satisfied, we acknowledge, as one writer said, that this promise is being progressively fulfilled here and now, but will not, but will only be finally and completely fulfilled in the final redemption when believers are glorified and resurrected. We recognize that right now there is a purity of heart that believers experience now through regeneration and through sanctification that comes from the Holy Spirit. And yet we still have to pray, Father, forgive us our debts and lead us not into temptation. But the day is coming when the pure in heart who still sin in the heart will see God. And when we see him, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Our hearts and everything we have will be perfected and glorified at last when we see his face. And so we join Paul 
and Peter and James, all of which alluded to the Sermon on the Mount in their exhortations to the church. We joined the Didache, we joined Chrysostom and Augustine and the Protestant reformers and their conviction that the Sermon on the Mount applies to believers here and now, and we are to make it our aim by the power of the Spirit of God and by the very life of the Son of God residing in us as we abide in Him to strive not only in our external actions but in our internal attitudes to walk in the righteousness that our Lord sets out for us in His Sermon on the Mount. Those who would place the Sermon on the Mount in the category as law and regard it as, quote, a declaration of impossible demands that are meant to drive us to despair and to look out of ourselves and onto Christ, they fail to see three of the recurring theological themes in Matthew's gospel. These themes are what give us the assurance that every Christian believer is divinely equipped and divinely enabled to walk in the righteousness expressed in the Sermon on the Mount. Number one, as Christians, we have participated in the new exodus. We have participated in the new exodus. As we have already seen, Matthew portrays Jesus as the new Moses, the promised prophet like Moses, who has come to lead God's people out of bondage to sin. And so while the righteousness set forth in the Sermon on the Mount may be totally impossible, for those who remain in bondage to sin and Satan. Yet, for the followers of Christ who have been delivered from this slavery, the Sermon on the Mount describes the righteousness that will characterize their lives as those who have experienced this deliverance from sin and its captivity. The Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 6, But thanks be to God, that you who once were slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. You become slaves of righteousness. Righteousness, of course, being the key theme in the Sermon on the Mount. So Paul agrees with this. You've been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness, and this righteousness is set forth like no other way in the Sermon on the Mount. Second, those who would regard the Sermon on the Mount as an expression of impossible demands that we can never live up to fail to see that as Christians we have experienced not only this new exodus out of the bondage of sin, but we have experienced the new creation the new creation. As we saw in the opening verses, Matthew's gospel begins the same way the book of Genesis is described in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 4. When Moses describes the origin or birth of the first creation, Matthew calls his gospel the book of the Genesis of Jesus Christ. And while it could be a simple reference to his genealogy as we looked at in chapter 1, Many scholars argue that there are good reasons to believe that this is also an introduction to the entirety of Matthew's gospel that presents the ministry of Jesus as an act and a foretaste and a preview of the new creation. For example, we see in his earthly ministry the powers of the age to come, to use the language of Hebrews 6. 
We see that his healings and his miracles and his power to restore and raise the dead, they all point to the future new creation when there will be no more curse and no more death. It's the coming new world that Jesus spoke of in Matthew 19, 28. All of this to say that the righteousness set forth in the Sermon on the Mount, far from being an expression of impossible demands, is only possible for those who have been made new by the one whom John the Baptist declared would come and baptize people with the Holy Spirit. The same Spirit who regenerates us and makes us new creatures, new creations in Christ. And thirdly, those who would say that the Sermon on the Mount is an extension of the law that's meant to crush us and it's, it's impossible to walk in its demands, fail to see that we are members of the new covenant. We have not only participated in the new exodus, we have not only experienced the new creation, but we are members of the new covenant. And in this covenant, this is what God promised long ago. Jeremiah 31, 33. This is the covenant, God says, that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. And of course, Ezekiel 36, beginning in verse 26, God says, regarding this new covenant, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you, listen to this, I will cause you to walk in my statutes and cause you to be careful to obey my rules. So as members of the new covenant, God's spirit is in us, working in us to will and work for his good pleasure. And so it's for these reasons. Number one, we've participated in the new exodus. We are no longer enslaved by sin. Number two, we have experienced the new creation and thus have new natures and the indwelling spirit of God. And number three, we are members of the new covenant. It's for these reasons that we believe that the Sermon on the Mount describes the righteousness that will characterize the lives of God's people by the help of the Holy Spirit under the lordship of Jesus Christ. I'm not saying this morning that the standards in the Sermon on the Mount will be an easy walk in the park. I'm not saying that. Nor am I minimizing the need to abide in Christ or pray to the Father or rely on the help of the Holy Spirit. I am simply saying that the Sermon on the Mount is the manifesto of King Jesus for his kingdom. It's what he expects life in his kingdom to look like. And it should be what and it's what we should strive to emulate in and through our lives. Well, last week in chapter 4, we saw Jesus, the last Adam, go head to head with the same serpent that overthrew the first Adam in the garden. We see this last Adam going head to head with the serpent in the wilderness, and we see him emerge triumphantly over every single temptation. We saw him take up residence in Galilee, the spiritually dark region of Galilee, where he began to call people to repentance and he began to call disciples to himself. We saw the four last week. 
We saw him gathering great crowds of followers as he taught in their synagogues and proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom and he healed every kind of disease among the people. Well, now chapter 5 picks up exactly where chapter 4 leaves off. We see big crowds at the end of chapter 4 and Matthew 5, 1 says this. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them. We'll stop right there. At first, the description of the setting seems rather mundane. Jesus sees the crowds, he ascends the mountain, he sits down, his disciples come to him, he opens his mouth and begins to teach them. But those who were familiar with the Old Testament would have picked up on the theological significance of these words. You see, our Savior's ascent up the mountain to deliver his authoritative interpretation and application of God's law brings back strong memories of the time Moses ascended Mount Sinai to receive and deliver God's law to the people of Israel. And there are two details in this opening, in these opening words, suggesting that Matthew wants his readers to notice this direct parallel. Number one, that phrase, he went up on the mountain, is an exact verbal parallel of Exodus 19, verse 3 in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which Matthew's readers would have been familiar with. This particular phrase is found only three times in the entire Greek Old Testament, and each time it's used, it's used with reference to Moses ascending Mount Sinai. Secondly, Jewish interpreters interpreted Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 9, to mean that Moses sat down on the mountain when he received the law from God. The same word is used by Isaiah in that famous vision of Isaiah 6 when he sees the Lord sitting upon his throne. Moses was sitting, receiving the law from God. And the reason Matthew highlights, I think, these parallels is very clear. They serve to identify Jesus as the new Moses, the fulfillment of the prophecy given by Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 18, beginning in verse 15. We see this Again and again in Matthew's gospel. Just listen to this prophecy. Deuteronomy 18, verse 15. Yahweh, your God, will raise up for you a prophet like me, Moses says, from among you, from your brothers. You shall listen to him. This is according to all that you asked of Yahweh, your God, in Horeb on the day of the assembly, saying, let me not hear again the voice of Yahweh, my God. Let me not see this great fire anymore. I will die. And Yahweh said to me, they have spoken well. And now listen, I will raise up a prophet from among their brothers like you, Moses, and I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And it will be that whoever will not listen to my words, which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. That's Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 through 19. So first, what we learn from that passage is this new Moses would be an Israelite. 
he will be raised up from among your brothers. Secondly, this new Moses would speak with the very authority of God himself. This is why God himself would require it of every person who refused to listen to this new Moses. And then thirdly, this new Moses, according to God, will be like Moses. Moses said, God will raise up a prophet like me, like me. Well, then later on, at the conclusion of Deuteronomy, where Moses is remembered, it's kind of like his obituary, if you will, newspaper clippings, two important features are mentioned. Number one, the end of Deuteronomy 34, we find that Moses had an intimate relationship with God. God says, I knew him face to face. And then secondly, the other feature that arises in Moses' obituary, if you will, are the mighty signs and wonders that God performed through Moses. So he had an intimate relationship with God, face to face intimacy, and he was known by his mighty miracles and signs and wonders. You know, we tend to think of Moses primarily as Israel's lawgiver. And he was, but the Jews regarded him as so much more than that. They viewed him, according to Acts chapter 7, verses 25 through 35, as a savior, as a ruler, as a redeemer. And as we've seen in Matthew 1, 21, Jesus, as the new Moses, was born, like Moses, to be a deliverer, to be a savior. The difference, of course, is that while Moses was born to deliver God's people out of bondage to Pharaoh, Jesus was born to deliver God's people out of bondage to sin. And so Matthew presents Jesus as this long-expected prophet like Moses, only he is infinitely greater than Moses. He speaks with God's own authority, so much so that he not only says regarding the Old Testament law, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. And he would go on to say, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words... My words will not pass away. And so while it's important for us to see Jesus as the new Moses of Deuteronomy 18, it's even more important that we understand that he is infinitely superior to Moses, as Hebrews chapter 3 explains to us. I do want to point out that just because Matthew again and again and again draws these parallels between Moses and Jesus, we are not to view the Sermon on the Mount as a kind of new law that we are to compare with the old law. In fact, in the last major section of Matthew 5, which theologians call the antitheses, Jesus takes the time to interpret portions of the law of Moses in a way that calls our attention to the importance of the Christian's heart in obeying these commandments. Some people see the Sermon on the Mount as set against the Old Testament law, and that's not the case. When Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you, he wasn't coming against the law. He was coming against the popular interpretation of the law as held by the religious leaders of the day. What we have in the Sermon on the Mount is the law and instruction that Jeremiah 31 promised, the instruction that would be written on our hearts under the new covenant. And so as we prepare to unpack the Sermon on the Mount in the coming weeks, we need to understand that it isn't a continuation 
of the law of Moses, nor is it a proclamation of the gospel per se with a call to repentance necessarily. I want you to notice how Matthew's language shifts from Jesus preaching in chapter 4, verse 23, to now teaching in chapter 5, verse 2. This is instructive because it helps us to see that Jesus is concerned about his disciples, his followers, his people being taught, not just won over by the proclamation of the gospel of the kingdom, but then taught and instructed and built up and nourished in the truth of God. His purpose is to instruct them and lead them in paths of righteousness for his namesake as the good shepherd of Psalm 23. The Sermon on the Mount describes life in the new covenant, friends, life as disciples of Christ. And then one last thing about the setting of the Sermon on the Mount that we cannot afford to miss. We've seen the parallels between Jesus and Moses and how he's not only like Moses in terms of his authority and his miracles, but he is infinitely greater than Moses. And that's because he is God in the flesh. He is God in the flesh. Notice chapter 5 and verse 2. He opened his mouth and began to teach them. He began to teach them. There was a prophecy in Isaiah. Isaiah 54. Paul alludes to it in Galatians chapter 4. Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. And as you continue to trace those words through the prophecy, you read these words. I will make your pinnacles of a gate and your gates of carbuncles and all your wall of precious stones All your children shall be taught by Yahweh. So as he looks forward to these latter days, he sees all of the descendants of Israel, all of God's people, to include the inclusion of the Gentiles, as we see earlier in chapter 54, reaching to the far corners of all the earth, being taught by Yahweh himself, and great shall be the peace of your children. Jesus actually alluded to the fact that these latter-day people of God would be instructed by God himself, right? In John chapter 6, verse 45, it was written that all shall be taught by God. And now we see here, as Jesus ascends the mountain, sits down, takes the position of a teacher, he begins to teach them because this is what was prophesied. This is what was promised, that God himself would come and teach his people. And it's interesting because the very next verse is what the Sermon on the Mount is about. Verse 14 of Isaiah 54. In righteousness you shall be established. So you see the picture of God himself, Yahweh himself, coming in these latter days and teaching his people. The result would be the people being established in righteousness. We're going to see that theme throughout the Sermon on the Mount. And so... I wanted to just give you an outline as we have time this morning of the Sermon on the Mount. An outline. 
you'll notice, first and foremost, it opens up with these Beatitudes. And what we're going to see in the coming weeks is is these Beatitudes are not imperatives, necessarily. They're not prescriptions of, uh, like modern-day translations say, happy are those who, and happy are those who, and happy are the... It's not the word Jesus uses here. And so we take these Beatitudes and we turn them into imperatives and, 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 and prescriptions. If you want to be happy... Well, you have to become poor in spirit. And I'm not denying the truth of that. They are indicatives that we should try to emulate in our lives as if they're imperatives. But first and foremost, the Beatitudes are indicatives. They're just descriptions of those who have been blessed by God, those who have been divinely favored by God. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness' sake. These are people that God has already rescued from the power of sin. I mean, I've heard sermons before where the the Beatitudes are given as a kind of Roman's road where, well, first you have to become poor in spirit, and then you have to become this, and then you have to become that. It's like a, a path leading up to conversion. No, Jesus is describing what discipleship looks like, what it means to have God's favor upon your life, his saving, regenerating transforming favor upon your life. And so we're going to see the Beatitudes and how all of them, most of them, have this eschatological direction. They shall be satisfied. They shall be comforted. Right? So while we can see some of these promises unfold in this life progressively, we receive comfort as we mourn for sin. The ultimate comfort that we will receive is described at the end of the book where God wipes away every tear from our eyes. And there's no more sin, no more death, no more curse. There will be this eschatological, final, comforting when we are ushered into the very presence of the king. And then next, Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, in verse 17, he begins to unpack this superior righteousness that he calls for in his kingdom. The demand for superior righteousness. It's a righteousness that should surpass the righteousness of the Pharisees and the religious leaders, which would have taken the people aback. You mean that our righteousness is supposed to look greater? Yes, but not in quantity, but in quality. In quality. Jesus is going to get to the heart of righteousness and the heart of sin. And I want to ask you the question this morning. In your pursuit of Christ, in your pursuit of doing the will of God, Have you reduced it down to merely external actions at the cost of inward attitudes? How do you regard the Christian life? Is it just about conforming your life outwardly to a bunch of precepts and counsels and rules and ordinances? Or are you chiefly concerned with the matter of the heart? Remember Psalm 139? After that great fall into sin... David says, you, Yahweh, you desire truth. Where? In the inward parts. You desire me to be real here. You desire truth here. You desire reality here. Jesus is going to get to the heart of that in the Sermon on the Mount as he calls for this superior righteousness. We tend to hear righteousness in our minds in the 21st century. We automatically go towards legalism and we go towards uh, impossibility. That's not where Jesus goes with the Sermon on the Mount. 
As Christian is going to be unpacking 1 John, we're going to see that righteousness characterizes the very children of God. That's not a word we should be scared of. That's a word that we should embrace and seek to walk in. It's not a self-righteousness. It's not a righteousness that we work up on our own. It's the very fruit of the living Christ in us, flowing through us as we abide in him as his branches. He's going to tackle topics like anger and lust and divorce and dishonesty and retaliation and hatred at the end of chapter 5. And then he's going to lead his disciples not only away from sin, but he's going to lead them into what Jewish culture considered to be their pillars. Almsgiving and prayer and fasting. And he's going to teach his disciples. He's going to teach us how to pray, how to address the Father, how to relate to one another, why we should fast, etc., And then he's going to address the disciples' priorities in verses 19 through 34 of chapter 6. There's two kinds of treasure. There's two kinds of conditions of the eye. No one can serve two masters. And we're going to see the result of proper prioritizing the kingdom of God. All these things shall be added unto you. Do not worry about these things. And then when we move into chapter 7, he's going to address the disciples' relationships how to relate to brothers and sisters in the Lord, verses 1 through 5, how to relate to dogs and pigs, verse 6, and then how to relate to the Father, verses 7 through 12. And then when we get to the conclusion of the sermon, he's going to to show us two roads and two gates that we can take. The broad path that leads to destruction or the narrow path that leads to life, which is bypassed by many. He's going to set before us two trees and fruits, verses 15 through 20. He's going to set before us two confessions, verses 21 through 23. And he's going to conclude by showing two kinds of hearers and builders. There are those who hear his words and refuse to put them into practice, do not listen to them. They're like foolish people who build themselves on sand The floods come, the winds blow and beat against that house, and it falls, and great is its fall. And he's not just talking about the trials that hit you in this life. He's not just saying, oh, if you don't listen to my words, then when the bills come in and the car wreck happens and the flood washes away your house, you're really going to suffer. No, he's talking eschatologically here. He's talking about the great judgment. Why would he go from talking about the judgment in verses 21 through 23 to then just the catastrophes of life in verses 24 through 27 of chapter 7. But those who hear his words and bank their lives on it and hang on every single word and seek to do it, they'll be like wise people who build themselves on the rock and they at last will stand on that final day because they've built their life on that which is substantial and eternal and worthy. His word. And then we're going to see the response of the crowds, marveling, astonished that he comes with such authority. He comes with such power. That's because he is not only the greater Moses, but he is God in the flesh. And therefore, we are to listen. We are to listen intently. We are to listen eagerly. We are to look to him as the word of life, as the very word of God. 
we're going to see that in this Sermon on the Mount, Jesus shows forth his own deity. I mean, you have to have, you have to be God to be able to say, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you six times. You have to be God in order to be able to, at the end of chapter seven, look at the crowds, look at your disciples and say that the one that all will stand before on that last day is you. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name do many mighty works and cast out demons? Jesus says, I will say to them, not my father will say to them, but I will say to them. You see, he ends on the note of his deity to grab the attention of his readers that this one who is speaking is the word of God himself. God the word. God the son. The son of the living God. And so as we approach these words in the coming weeks, we are to understand that this sermon bears all the marks of divine authority and deity. I think a fitting way to end today is to look at Psalm 25 as we approach the words of God in the Sermon on the Mount. Psalm 25 instructs us how we are to prepare our hearts and listen to God when he speaks and for what purpose we are to listen and open our ears. Psalm 25. Notice David says, To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. And listen to these words. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. Notice that there's no one else he's looking to to teach him. No one else he's looking to to lead him. One of the promises in the new covenant in Jeremiah 31 is that God says, No more shall each one teach his neighbor, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. Why? How? Because God himself will teach them. By this new and greater Moses and by the spirit who comes to help us understand these words. He leads us. He teaches us. Lead me in your path and teach me. That should be our heart's posture as we approach the Sermon on the Mount. Lord, teach me that I might walk in your ways. I want to ask you this morning as we conclude, how do you view the Sermon on the Mount? Do you view it as a walk in the park because you're going to try to take these internal demands and reduce them back again to external actions? Do you view them as impossible? And I think this is where a lot of us are at times. There are a lot of people who view Christianity as impossible, and so it's almost like making a mockery of our Lord's words. Our Lord gives us, in authoritative fashion, words from heaven carefully spoken, appropriately applied. And then we take them 2,000 years later and say, ah, oh, these are just meant to drive us to despair so that we just, uh, we just ask God to have mercy on us because we can't do this. Friend, you are a member of the new covenant. You have the spirit of God in you. I'm not saying you're going to do this perfectly. We're gonna see in chapter six, we still have to pray, Lord, 
Father, forgive us for our debts and lead us not into temptation. We're going to see the need for ongoing mercy and grace. But for us to have this defeatist mentality as we approach the Sermon on the Mount and say, well, no one can ever really live up to this, that's not the attitude that we are to have as we approach the Sermon on the Mount or any part of God's word except for the law that was meant to crush us and bring us down and drive us to despair to seek salvation and justification and life in Christ. This is a path to wholeness. Look at the end of chapter 5, Matthew. Matthew chapter 5. A lot of the proponents who would say that the Sermon on the Mount is an expression of impossible demands, they'll often point to Matthew 5, 48 as the nail in the coffin to support this impossible Christianity. They'll say, see, Jesus says, you therefore must be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. And they'll say, see, the standard that he's setting out in the Sermon on the Mount is perfection, and no one can attain perfection unless you're a heretic. No one can reach this perfection. Therefore, this is not meant for us to to, to walk in. This is not meant for us to fulfill. Not realizing that this is the same word that Paul uses, James uses, to talk about the Christian's life being complete. We read into that sinless perfection. He's talking about wholeness, completeness. It's possible to be whole and still a sinner. It's possible to be complete in Christ and still sin. But you're thoroughly furnished with all that God has for you and all that God is for you, and yet you're still not perfected. So we don't have to look at verse 48 and see, well, man, the demands are impossible because he calls us to perfection. This is a call to wholeness, completeness in God's eyes. You want to be a complete man, a complete woman? This is the purpose of the ministry. Why did God give pastors and elders and in the early church apostles and such to equip the saints for the work of ministry? For what purpose? To ultimately bring the church to maturity. The same word that uh, Jesus uses here for perfect is used elsewhere in the New Testament to talk about maturity. A mature man, a mature woman, a whole woman, a woman who's been put together by the grace of God and held together by the power of God. That's what he's calling us for, calling us to in this sermon. Father, this morning we ask that not only would our appetites be whetted, but that we would prepare our hearts, search our hearts to see if right now we are listening well. Right now are we looking to your word, looking to Christ as Isaiah 50 says, like Christ, with an open ear. Do we awake each morning with an ear open to your word? Lord, we don't want to conform our lives to, or reduce our lives down to external actions, but we want to get to the heart of the matter, which is the matter of the heart. And so I pray that in the coming weeks, we would learn what it means to be whole and complete and blessed Teach us authentic poverty of spirit. Teach us what it means to mourn for sin and mourn for a dying world. Teach us what it means to truly hunger and thirst for righteousness. We look to this one who is infinitely superior to Moses to, as the good shepherd, feed us 
nourish us and lead us in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. We thank you for today. We pray in his name.